0: Michael Easley, In Context. Here's a peek at what Michael will be talking about today. Okay, well, you can't shame him. What you have to do is change the culture. You understand what I mean? Because he's just, like I said, he's just as broken as the woman that's on stage. What's the difference? Everybody's in there trying to get a need met. It's just a counterfeit way to get it done. And so if we can change the culture and and again, start defining women by who they are rather than what they can do or their sexuality, then we've made a difference. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael
1: Easley. Paul writes, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. When I read Romans, I'm always struck by the fact that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Paul says it clearer than anywhere in scripture. Once we come to Christ, he sees us differently. Today on the broadcast, we'll be talking with Annie Donawald. Annie, at the age of 19, entered the sex industry. For six years of exotic dancing in Chicago, Detroit, eventually landing her in Las Vegas and California, escalated into a high-class prostitution lifestyle. It was only after her second pregnancy, where she was contemplating an abortion, after five attempts to schedule an abortion and end that pregnancy, that through God's intervention, in her words, of leaving $100 behind at home, she was unable to pay for the abortion. That was the event that struck her so hard. And not long after, Matthew 4.16 pops into her head, having never read the scripture, having never known anything about this verse, and she reads, those who sit in darkness have seen a great light. Within the next day, she trusts Christ to be her savior. Annie was born again. Annie Donawald, it's a privilege to have you on the broadcast, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, I'm, I suspect at some level you get a little tired of telling your story.
0: <laughs> That's why I wrote the book.
1: <laughs> Touche. Mm-hmm. Okay, everyone, just buy Dancing for the Devil, and we'll talk to Annie later. <laughs> <laughs> the end. There's, there's a story. We could do that. Um, so let, let, let me start at a different place. You finished a Bachelor of Science in Family Studies.
0: I did. At Western Michigan University, I sure did.
1: So, so what's going on with your life, which we'll get to in a moment, did any of this collide with what you were studying?
0: You know, it's funny because I was actually, um, I was dancing when I was in college, and I went to my academic advisor and said, what is the quickest way out of here? <laughs> and that was the answer he gave me. So it's, it's ironic how you know, God set that whole thing up because the core of that degree is human development, and I took a lot of classes on, um, you know, abnormal psych, abnormal abuse, different things like that, that, you know, they totally helped me with what I'm doing now.
1: But at the time? No idea. No idea.
0: No idea what I was doing. I, I just wanted, out a, I wanted to degree, and I wanted to move on. Uh-huh.
1: Well, Annie, at age 13, you are sexually abused by a player on your dad's basketball team.
0: I was. Um... My father was a basketball coach at Western Michigan university. Um, He had been at Illinois state university prior to that. And he was coaching with coach Bobby Knight at Indiana. And when we moved to Kalamazoo, um, you know, things kind of took a turn and the book gets into, you know, growing up in the limelight, growing up in the bubble, and then kind of having that bubble for me burst at the age of 13, when I was sexually assaulted by one of his players. And you know, the toll that it takes when you keep secrets at that age, I had a decision to make that young on whether I was going to tell. And in my mind, you know, I had the pressure of my father losing his career, Mm. you know, being a university scandal. So I, at 13 years, old, kept my mouth shut and didn't tell. But what happens when girls that age end up keeping their mouth shut is that they become toxic Mm. because they don't have the right skills in order to be able to cope with that kind of crisis. And so my life just started to become kind of unraveled from then on.
1: And, and I would suspect even even then, there probably were not the resources today, even if you had chosen to come forward, um, or, or would there have been resources, do you think, if you'd come you know, forward? I,
0: I'm not sure. My whole concern, you know, in my mind frame at 13, make, you know, a 13-year-old is making a decision to protect their father who has a huge career. You know, I wasn't into, I wonder if somebody could help me, or it was just, let's just keep this quiet, let's just not tell anybody, because you, I knew that my father would have killed him, you know, so... I just, I made the decision to just, to keep quiet.
1: Four years later?
0: Four years later, I was in high school. And it was, it was seeming like I was getting, you know, the the rabbit trail got worse. Down the rabbit hole I went, and I was raped on campus. Um, I was at a boarding school, and um, I was raped at 17. And again, things became even more toxic and, and more unraveled, and so... You know, and I tell these stories not to be graphic or, or to mm-hmm. um, glorify, you know, all of this trauma, but to explain why girls in the sex industry don't just wake up one day and want to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason that that's not a job choice at career day when you're in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of the reason and, you know, a lot of the reason I wanted to write the book was to show this is what happens. It isn't these girls that love sex or it isn't these girls that are so deviant and rebellious I've never met a girl in the sex industry that hasn't had some form of abuse that's happened to her.
1: And that, of course, is not a very popular message in the adult uh, film industry.
0: Um, I think it's a well-known message in the adult film industry because we all have a common denominator where we're all survivors. Hmm. Uh, I think that, actually, I think it gets a little bit more touchy in the church because, you know, sex is so, we don't really talk about that in church. We don't want to talk about the mess of life. We don't want to talk about the abuse, you know. So um, sometimes my message is a little le- less received mm-hmm. in church community more than it is in the adult entertainment industry.
1: So you're 17 years old. You've been traumatized and uh, over-sexualized, I guess we could say too early. Yeah. that's a good way to um, And by 19 years of age,
0: uh, there were girls that showed up at my <laughs> my door, and um, I ended up becoming friends. There was about nine of them. And they were all exotic dancers. They were all strippers. And, you know, being around that for a while, it becomes normal. They, it was almost like they in, indoctrinated me into a culture that, that I had no idea even existed. But um, it wasn't a huge leap to transition into that culture. And, and I ended up, a couple weeks later, after meeting them and hanging out with them on a regular basis, um, doing an amateur night at the strip club in Kalamazoo. And I won. Did you feel
1: on? Did you feel any connection to those women? Was there like a, a even if it was strange, a community with them?
0: For sure. For sure. I mean, there was, con- you know, we had a lot of commonalities. You know, like I said, girls in the sex industry kind of have a lot of things in common. We've come from a lot of different places. We've come from a lot of broken places. And so, yeah, I think that there was definitely a camaraderie between us, us girls, you know, and we would look out for each other, you know, in its own dysfunctional way. Mm-hmm.
1: So you start uh, as a dancer, exotic dancer at 19. At 19, you also become pregnant. You write in your book. I did. And then I what? I
0: had my daughter. I um, I quit for a while and went back to school. I dropped out of school. You know, you can't, the sex industry, like I said, it's its own culture. You can't live in two cultures at once. And so trying to get up for class at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I just got home from work at 5, and, you know, I'm intoxicated on whatever. That's kind of a hard balance. So, um, I ended up dropping out of school when I started dancing, but then went back after I was pregnant with my daughter and got quite a bit of college under my belt. Once I had her, um, I ended up back in the industry just a few weeks after I had her.
1: Anywhere along that time, uh, your, your folks are fine Christian home. You've, you shared in the past, um, anywhere in this process, you're talking to them.
0: Um, you know, at that time I thought that it was best to keep my distance. It was real clear. Um, I think to everybody, you know, my dad still being in the public eye, I think everybody kind of knew that his daughter was toxic to some degree. And so, you know, to just kind of save face and save him, and, and again, just protecting him, I kind of kept my, my distance from from the family and from the program. You know, they didn't really want to watch their daughter unravel. And so, you know, I kind of, we were in touch, but I personally created a space um, just because I was I knew that the choices that I were making Was reflecting on him and reflecting on my family.
1: Undoubtedly, you saw this story last year. Alyssa Funk, F U N K E, straight A student at U of uh, Wisconsin. She went and made a porn video.
0: Oh, I might have.
1: For some money, and uh, she came back to high school. Straight A kid came back to high school, and the social media thing went viral with all of her quote friends. Mm -hmm. And she kills herself. 19-year-old straight-A girl.
0: And see, here's the thing about her, though. We don't understand her backstory, so it's easy to look at that and go, well, what happened? But I guarantee you if, you, if you talk to her family or if you talk to her friends, again, that wasn't an overnight decision for her just to jump into porn. You know, nobody does that. She's a straight-A student. What happened in the interim? I'd be curious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, as Christians, that's where compassion comes in. Because you can't, it's easy to look from the outside looking in and look at somebody's story and judge them for the decisions they make. But when we look at them from the inside and we see, okay, well, this happened here and this happened here, and we start to understand why they did the things that they do, that's where compassion came in. And I think, you know, even just with what the work that I'm doing now, that's what we try to do.
1: When, um, when you talk to parents or teens, um, what are you telling them to watch for early on?
0: Um... Well, you know, I think with parents, I, I get a lot of emails from mothers that are concerned about, you know, their girls and different things with my organization and um one of the things that we're really advocating about is sex trafficking. And so, you know, they say, Well, what are we supposed to be looking for? And the number one thing is a change in behavior. You know, a parent knows their kid more than anybody else. If there's all of a sudden a change in behavior, they're they're not um, you know, they're kind of disconnected, they start making their don't just automatically assume it's just something that teenage girls are going through because it might be deeper than that.
1: Social media—it probably was not in, in during your oh, thank journey, God. <laughs> yeah,
0: it was. Social media wasn't an issue when I was doing it. That would have been an even bigger mess than we already. That would have been a whole another book, I believe.
1: Yeah. And it seems to be getting uh, virals, the understatement, the permutations of Snapchat and now videos that can be destroyed after viewing, and yet they leave impressions and footprints everywhere. Um, you know, when I was uh, a teenage boy, to come across a Playboy or a penthouse or whatever, you know, you're, you're, you were fearing God and your parents. Wow. Um, but the accessibility of technology makes it so easy for boys and girls to be over-sexualized at very early age.
0: Um, I think that... In a country where we live, you know, we're selling we're selling shampoo by using sex. We've definitely um, over-sexualized women in this country.
1: So how do you help those little girls that and and they see a picture of Annie who's a beautiful woman? And they I mean, see I
0: think that our number one goal with younger girls with, you know, I even my daughter now, she's 16 years old, you know, I, she's I'm really active in her life. I'm active in her social life, you know, and so And a lot of the girls will come to our house and they'll they'll talk to me and tell me things they don't necessarily want to tell their mom. Um, And I think that the number one message that we're trying to just tell women in general is to become who God created you to be. You don't have to be reduced down to your sexuality. You don't have to be defined by something you did in your past, you know, but God made you specifically for a purpose. And so if we can get to the heart of that, you know, a lot of times people ask me when we're helping girls out of the sex industry now. And they say, well, I don't know how you're going to do that because those girls will always go back to the money. I always explain to them that there's something that's more important to every human soul than money and that's passion, it's purpose. And so if you can tap them and lead them and help them discover who they were created to be, that will always take precedent over any, anything else, including sin, including things they're not supposed to be doing, including alcohol, you know, premarital sex, all these things. If you can catch them on fire at a young age for who they were created to be and help them navigate through that, then you know their whole life can change. That's the message that we send.
1: And you started Eve's Angels as uh, an extension of this, where you're you're trying right. to not only help girls in the trafficking situation, but you're you're working with some churches too, correct?
0: We are. <laughs> we are, we are partnered with um, about nine churches in the country right now. We're looking to expand in some some other cities. But yep, there's a lot of education that needed to go on when I first started. I'm just really grateful because in the last year or two, I've seen just this great awakening that's happening within the church where they're becoming, fami- they're becoming familiar with things like sex trafficking, the sex industry, post-traumatic stress disorder, these things that I was already familiar with because I went through it all. So when, you, when the ministry first started and I would go to these churches and say, hey, listen, we need your help. This is what we do. They'd look at me like I was a blue, you know, alien. They're like, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? But there's definitely a movement inside of the church is starting to understand and they're starting to advocate they're starting to wake up to the fact that these are god's girls and he wants us to go in there and he wants us to love them
1: when you uh take a group of women and you go to a strip club uh during the day or in the evening and try to try to reach out and share with these women um do you feel threatened
0: never 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 never, never. no but i mean the industry again it's its own culture i understand the rules it's like You would probably feel threatened if if you went and flew over to Africa and went into the bush. You don't understand the culture, so it might feel a little bit more threatening. Whereas if I'm from there and I took you over there myself, you wouldn't feel so threatened because you'd feel comfortable about the fact that I understood the culture. And it's the same thing with the sex industry. You know, it's its own culture. It has its own rules. It has its own thing. And if you go in there, you're not judgmental. You're not in fear, you know, because they can leave you. They have to for survival purposes. But they know that we're coming with love and they know that we don't have an agenda we're just there to let them know that we support them in any way, shape, or form. And when they're ready to quit, then we're there to help them with that as well. Mm.
1: You also have a, a ministry link I saw on your site called Armed. Tell us about that.
0: Yes, the Armed Campaign. Um, I am on an advisory board to a state senator in the state of Michigan. And I was doing some speaking engagements for her. And she called me and said, What are we missing? And I, I said, You know, Judy, her name's Judy Emmons. I said, Judy, I, I feel like. Um, there's no men at any of your events. And so she said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know. Let me call you back. And I prayed about it. And I just, I felt like what we needed to do, men weren't apathetic because because they didn't care. It wasn't that they were being apathetic. It's because they were ignorant. So men weren't getting involved because they didn't understand what was happening in this country. So I set up the ARM campaign. It it stands for the Association of Real Men Ending the Demands. And it's basically you pledge online saying that you will not buy women or children for sex in any way, shape or form. And that, you know, the goal is to get men educated because men can have conversations with other men that women aren't privy to, like in the gym or in a locker room or at a men's meeting or different things. So when these discussions take place, if we can educate them, they can spread it as, a, as like a grassroots effort to spread the knowledge of what's happening right here in this country with sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. So we're trying to start a movement with the men to protect women instead of use them, you know, as we see so far often.
1: Do you think men understand um, when they're looking at pornography or going to strip clubs, do you think they understand what they're doing to a young woman's heart, soul, mind? I don't. Um,
0: You know, a lot of people ask me, one one of the main the number one questions I get is don't you hate men now? Mm. And my answer is no, I I don't hate men. I I think that broken people do broken things. You know, I also understand that not all men are that broken where they're in there. You know, I, I don't think that men see when a man is participating in this industry. I don't think that he understands that these are people. He doesn't, he sees them as products, but it's so conditioned in his mind because of the culture that we're in. You know, it's like, okay, well, you can't shame him. What you have to do is change the culture. You understand what I mean? Because he's just, like I said, he's just as broken as the woman that's on stage. What's the difference? Everybody's in there trying to get a need met. It's just a counterfeit way to get it done. And so if we can change the culture and, and again, start defining women by who they are rather than what they can do or their sexuality, then we've made a difference.
1: How did, how did Annie get to the place where she could disassociate uh, who she was and what she was doing, and this new identity in Christ, and then how do you look at your own life?
0: That's a really good question. <laughs> okay, two parts. How do I go and do what I do now? you me. I spent I spent years, <laughs> kind of on the floor of a church, nodding, <laughs> crying, and just getting just finding out who I was, you know, and not and and kind of just realizing the lies that I was believing about who I was, and realizing what I could do and how I could make a difference in people's lives Mm -hmm. Um, so you know I think that that's that's where we try to lead people there's a lot of ministries uh, I I use air quotes when I say ministries. there's a lot of ministries or outreach teams that go out throughout the country to go and reach out to these women in the sex industry and some of them they don't want to be offensive so they don't tell them about Jesus and that to me you know coming from the sex industry is terribly insulting because if you have the key to get me out of hell (laughs) I'm going to need you to give me the key. You know, even if I'm insulted for a minute, I still need you to come in love and tell me about who it is that sets people free because that's the only answer that I have. Jesus is it.
1: So so you come to a saving faith in Christ. He transforms your life. You spend a long time on the floor of the church, which I could totally envision uh, anyone who's been through that kind of trauma. That makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. Um, but... There's got to be times in your in your soul, Annie, when you go, "Wow, he loves me. He sees me as his beloved child." Um, how do I how do I go forward? How do I use this? Is my whole life defined by this?
0: <laughs> I my scarlet letter. You mean like when I'm doing interviews?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like some guy's interviewing for the umpteenth time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that you understand that. Most people don't have a heart, or you know, even have the mind to comprehend that. Um, there's a friend of mine named Annie Lobert. She runs a ministry called Workers for Jesus. and so we always get a boot out of like, uh oh, I got to go put my scarlet letter back on and go, you know, it go tell <laughs> my story. Uh,
1: I'm sorry that, to be laughing.
0: You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. And I love her because she shares such a similar story as mine, so I can get on the phone with her, and we don't see each other as that. You see what I mean? Yeah. And not a zebra at the zoo or something to be watched. And that does get exhausting, you know, and, and I've spent a lot of time in in prayer and on the phone with my pastor, like, mm. what am I supposed to do? They all want me to come in and tell the story over and over and over. And, um, you know, it's, it's part of helping. Number one, it's part of helping the girl. So if I tell my story and it helps somebody, then it was worth it. Mm. That's number one. Number two, I think it's important to have balance. And so, you know, there's times where I kind of shut things down and just go play chess mm-hmm. or, you know, Jenga with my kids. Like, so, there are certain things that I have to do, you know, to keep myself okay. whole and to keep myself, you know, out of that hole, losing your identity or getting swamped in all of the totality of everything that I've been through. And I've learned to balance it pretty well. I mean, I don't think, I think that if I hadn't, we wouldn't have been able to expand the way that we did.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Annie, tell us about your goals for Eve's Angels and what you need.
0: Um, right now we are really pushing to um, become corporate. Um, everything right now is on volunteer basis and we have volunteer, I mean, I have the best volunteers that have really carried the vision in, you know, seven, eight cities across the country. Um, we're looking to expand. We are doing major fundraising things. We have a huge event May 9th in Chicago for our five year anniversary. Uh, we're doing a silent auction to raise money so we can do expansion. We're doing two foreign conventions this year. So mm. that's another thing where <laughs> we set up bullets and pray for the people. And then we're also looking to do um, a housing and rehabilitation center. Um, You know, that was the thing I always had a home to go home to. My parents were always there for me, but a lot of these women don't have a place. And so because I lived through what it takes to get out and to rehabilitate myself and, you know, I walk with the Lord and going through all these things, it's important that we have these structures set up for these women when they do want to come out where it can be a family, Mm -hmm. you know, because not all of them are blessed like I am to have that kind of family. And so those are the things that Ease Angels is working towards right now. And I'm, you know, I'm in Chicago, and then I'm in Grand Rapids, and then I'm in Detroit. And, and um, I just, I really feel like, you know, 2015, 2016, those things need to happen sooner than later.
1: So, Annie, if I hear you correctly, the church could do a much better job if we could see not only sex trafficked girls, but just individuals as hurting, as lost, as discouraged, and we have the hope of Christ And we need to have the courage and the kindness uh, to share the love of Christ. Not all the answers, not all the uh, solutions, but that Christ loves them. He is willing to embrace them. He died for their sins, and we will love them as well. Well, we will pray with you to that end. You can find out more about Eve's angels and Annie's story on the website. Annie Donawald, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I will pray that God will encourage your heart.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: This is an ongoing reminder for us men and women that we see the world uh, through Christ's eyes. People are broken, they're hurt, they're damaged, they're wounded, and you and I share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he lived, he died, he was buried, that he came back from the dead to demonstrate his power over life. And he grants life eternal to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. Now maybe this is an area for you to consider. Maybe you need to look in your own neighborhoods and see could Eve's Angels help you as you reach out to those men and women who are in the sex traffic industry this is Michael Easley in Context
0: thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context if you have questions or comments please let us know at michaelincontext.com We'll be